Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. There has been experiences where a group had been stigmatized and there was a lot of prejudice against it. There have been several uh, writers in the past who said that we are in a post-gay environment. We're being LGBT is no longer an issue for young people. Uh, but I personally do not see that and I don't believe that is the case at this point. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm David, a youth participant at Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Sarah talks with Dr. Elon Meyer, Distinguished Senior Scholar of Public Policy at the Williams Institute for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Law and Public Policy at the UCLA School of Law. In this program, Dr. Meyer talks about minority stress and how it affects LGBTQ individuals and minorities. Dr. Elon Meyer, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You wrote an article called Minority Stress and Mental Health in Gay Men in 1995. In it, you describe minority stress as psychological stress derived from minority status. Can you tell us about how this affects the LGBT community? The cause of minority stress, by definition of what minority stress is, is the stigma and prejudice that exists in society. And what this stigma and prejudice leads to is expressed in stress experiences. So let's say losing a job is a very serious life event. It's a very negative life event. And it can have a lot of impact because all of the adaptation that a person has to go through to cope with that. In a similar way, LGBT people will have the same causes as everybody else because everybody experiences stress. Well, prejudice and stigma would lead LGBT people to lose their job more often than cisgender heterosexual people because of that addition that they could potentially lose their job also because of discrimination. So that's basically the difference. It's not that it's a different type of stress, but it can happen more frequently because of prejudice and stigma. Another example is violence attacks. Anybody could have a risk of experiencing a violent attack, but LGBT people could have greater risk because it could be related to stigma and prejudice against LGBT people in society. So what is called anti-gay violence or anti-trans violence could affect them. And that's like an added reason for any other reason that somebody might be attacked. So what are some of those uh, health outcomes, both physical and mental? LGBT people have a variety of health disparities, as we call it, which refers to the differences in health outcomes between straight, cisgender, and LGBT populations. And those include mental health outcomes, 
such as depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, as well as suicide and suicide ideation and things related to that, such as self-harming behaviors. So even if an individual does not experience direct homophobia or transphobia, are they still affected by minority stress, being part of the community? First of all, there are things like chronic stressors that are not a discrete life event, but they're ongoing things. And so an LGBT person in school may not experience a life event such as being attacked or bullied, but may still feel um, secondary citizens, so to speak, may still feel uh, uh, not as accepted, may still feel that, you know, all the examples in school discuss heterosexual people, maybe, and that his or her experience is not reflected. So those are kind of different ways of experiencing stress that are not as discrete and maybe as large of an event as, let's say, being attacked violently or being bullied. Uh, Then there are other types of experiences that have to do with being socialized in a society where being gay, lesbian, or bisexual, and being transgender or gender nonconforming are causes for stigma and prejudice. And if you, as you grow up, learn negative things about these groups, maybe from hearing uh, comments in your family or in your church or in your school, or maybe reading newspapers or, or, or social media, seeing negative portrayals or negative language used uh, to describe LGBT people. And you yourself, let's say when you begin to realize that you might be LGBT or you apply those terms to yourself, then you acquire the same negative things that you've learned in your socialization that now they apply to you. So it used to be a common stereotype that gay people, LGBT people, don't really have good relationships, that they're lonely, that they're never going to have a family. So if you're a young uh, LGBT person and you learn that and now you're thinking, well, I might be LGBT or I am LGBT, and then you think, well, I guess that means that I would never have a family. I will always be lonely. That means that you acquired, socialized these negative attitudes or stereotypes that are uh, prevalent in society. And now you think that that's going to happen to you. And we call that also a stressor that is related to internalizing stigma and prejudice. Can you tell us about microaggressions and how they play into internalized homophobia and minority stress? Basically, their significance is in their symbol. So the symbol that they convey to the person is that they're not equal or they're not as worthy as other people. One example that came up a lot in the discussions in the United States about marriage equality was when LGBT people complained, for example, that when they fill out a form, they have to say that they're single or they find there's no word for them in the form, let's say the doctor's office or filling out a form when you arrive in a plane for customs checks. There's no way for you to describe your relationship because you're not legally married, but you might have been in a long-term relationship with a same-sex partner. 
But again, it's just a form, right? You can say, well, what's the big deal? But the big deal part of it is the way that it reflects the general social stigma and prejudice. Transgender people talk a lot about gender affirmation is one of the minority stressors or gender non-affirmation. So uh, somebody to refer to a trans uh, person uh, with the wrong pronoun, or w- w- which often is meant to kind of negate their experience and presentation of their gender. And again, that is an obvious way of trying to belittle them and assert the kind of uh, inferiority uh, that uh, the person speaking uh, sees them as as not equal and as not worthy. Again, in all of those, the main attribute for those things is the way that they assert certain stigma and prejudice that is prevalent in society through these small minor interactions. LGBT youth are at a heightened risk of suicide and other self-destructive behaviors compared to the general youth population. We know that there are very real stress factors, including potential or actual rejection by friends and family members, homelessness, the inability to complete an education, and others. Dr. Meyer, can you tell us how the concept of minority stress applies to young LGBT people especially? In particular for youth, there is a period where the youth is socialized and learning negative things about uh, what it is to be gay or about gender uh, or about uh, sexuality in general. And those negative things get internalized. And then there are the external things, violence and bullying. And then those those microaggressions. So LGBT youth do experience those things to a much greater extent than straight and cisgender youth. Sexual minority youth experience a lot more bullying, uh, experience more violence in schools, are more afraid to go to school. They uh, find that the school environment is less welcoming and supportive. They have less trust in uh, uh, talking to a teacher about uh, problems that they experience. So there's a whole range of stressors that experience in a school environment and then there is the family rejection, which you mentioned in your question, where uh, some sexual minority and gender minority youth have a difficulty from within their own family, where um, they can experience um, both severe life events, like, like violence, uh, and you mentioned homelessness, as well as more minor type of um, annoyances and, and chronic expression of rejection. So even if it doesn't lead to homelessness, you could still uh, experience rejection at home. And that is a very unique form of uh, aggression, both micro and, 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 and large, that people would experience within their families where they're supposed to be protected. So that is a very severe experience of stress, which among along with other things we believe is related to the higher um, rate of suicide ideation in LGBT youth. People, as they recognize that they might be LGBT, have to, in some ways, overcome this. And we, we call this in psychology coming out, which is similar to the term of coming out by telling people, but it's also an internal process where 
the person learns to answer all those negative stereotypes by uh, strengthening themselves and recognizing that those negative stereotypes or attitudes are wrong and, and basically realizing that society in a sense is wrong for being homophobic or transphobic. And that's a process that takes time and that process ultimately is a positive one for many people, but it is a stressful process. Do you think that there's anything that youth can do um, sort of preemptively to, to deal with their own stress and the effects of that stress? Well, yeah, I think um, getting involved and um, getting uh, connected to resources uh, in the LGBT community can be very helpful. Certainly with suicide, uh, we know that there are organizations like Traver Project where um, counselors and peers offer support, and that could be a really uh, important resource for uh, people who do have suicidal or uh, uh, self-harming thoughts and uh, uh, behavior. Uh, And um, there, you know, certainly a lot of options available now because society is getting better uh, despite all those negative things that I've said. Uh, we did. Uh, there, are, there have been a lot of improvements. Um, uh, it used to be that it was very hard for somebody to find supportive services if you're LGBT and especially if you're young. But hopefully now people can reach out through internet, even if they're living in isolated or, or in a place that there's not a lot of uh, local resources. They can reach uh, via texting or email or um, a website that are um, more passive. You don't have to identify yourself. Uh, so that's one form of getting uh, help. But it's not just about getting help. It's also getting educated, getting educated about what it means to be a sexual minority, what is, what is gender, learning some alternative ways of, of thinking about it, more critically thinking about sexual identity and gender identity. Uh, and the other thing they can do is become more active in places like GSAs if they're in schools uh, where they can introduce to the school and, and help themselves and others with, um, again, resources, uh, cultural outlets like uh, reading books and seeing films that, that are relevant to the uh, sexual and gender identity and that raise all kinds of discussion that could be helpful as a way of thinking through some of those uh, issues and uh, uh, getting support from people in the community, both the peers, the young people, as well as all the people who may have experienced uh, some of the same stressors themselves and have learned how to cope with them. So I think there are a lot of resources that um, young people have, but of course, uh, it's still not easy to reach out to those resources, especially if you're afraid that somebody will find out if you're if you're not uh, out or if you're um, not even sure yourself about your own feelings about uh, your sexual identity or gender identity. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Sarah is talking with Dr. Elon Meyer, 
Distinguished Senior Scholar of Public Policy at the Williams Institute for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Law and Public Policy at the UCLA School of Law. Let's talk about intersectionality and how it applies within the LGBT community. Intersectionality refers to being a member of more than one marginalized group. So, for example, LGBT people of color often have to deal with racism in the LGBT community as well as homophobia in ethnic communities. Can you talk about the minority stress experienced by those who are both LGBT and members of other minority groups? Intersectionality is an approach that teaches us to look at people as more complex in their identities. So um, I mentioned coming out actually before the, the idea that there's a psychological process of coming out and learning about your identity. And it used to be that the coming out models kind of presumed the person starts from like a void, from nothing, and then they discover they're gay or lesbian, and then they kind of come to terms with that. And now we know that that picture is much more complex because you don't start from nothing. You start from a whole complex set of identities that you have, and then maybe you add to that your sexual or gender identity that you're developing. And that is in the context of, uh, among other things, your own culture that you come from, your whether it's race, ethnicity, or even uh, where you live in a big city or a small city or, or a non-urban area, whether you're religious or not. Those are all points of intersection that make a whole lot of difference in the context of where you begin to think about sexuality and gender. So what we know from intersectionality is that it's really important to not just talk about what does it mean to be LGB, but what does it mean to be LGB within different contexts. And you mentioned a race ethnicity. One of the things that we do know from studies of um, Black and Latino LGB people, for example, is that compared with white people, there's a different role for religion, for example. Religion can be helpful or harmful for LGB people in all race ethnic groups. But if you are in a Black and Latino community where the church is an important part of your social and cultural environment, and if the church is rejecting, it's very difficult to do what many white people do, which is just leave the church, because the church is also the place where you meet your family and your community, and that's a place where you are able to get comfort and assert your race, ethnicity, identity, so that you can't just kind of divorce your whole culture just because you're gay. So that's just one example of uh, how religion intersects with LGB identity and how and, and race, ethnicity, and how those three can have complex ramification, complex influences on, on how the person develops as an LGB person or as a gender minority person and what kind of options they even have in terms of uh, resources that I mentioned before, uh, um, finding ways to connect with other people. All of those things are important within those intersectional contexts. There are other contexts that have to do maybe with body image and 
we don't have so many opportunities, let's say, for different able bodies to interact in an LGBT community center and maybe uh, feel as welcomed or, or even uh, there's been a lot of research, especially with gay men's culture, about the importance of certain body image and if you don't fit that very fit and, and uh, what is considered attractive, if you don't fit that kind of image, then you might have more difficulties that have to do with um, just feeling rejected in a community that you want to be part of. So it's race, ethnicity, social class, background, religion, but also things like handicap or different able bodies and uh, even things like uh, presentation in terms of uh, being fat versus thin. And I think that's a challenge for the LGBT community to find ways that it could be uh, helpful and welcoming to those people in these different intersections. And um, I think uh, there's some progress, but uh, there's still a lot to be done. So despite the recent positive trend in societal views, the Trump administration, combined with Republican control of both houses of Congress, is certainly hostile to LGBT people and our rights. How do you think this going forward will affect the stress experienced by the community? Well, I think it has, um, again, two different impacts. One is the more tangible impacts, which uh, could be very severe if the laws are changed, rolled back, certain protections. For example, the Obama administration had a protection for discrimination in employment uh, through contracts with the federal government. If the Trump administration takes that back, that will open the gate for more discrimination, which of course is a very tangible negative effect, which, as I said in my first example, a very clear stressor that more LGBT people could lose their job because there's no discrimination protections. On the other hand, there's also more, less tangible, more symbolic effects. And I think um, LGBT people are already feeling that, which is uh, that they're not as respected and protected by the administration, and to the extent that that's the case, that could have a negative uh, impact on on how LGBT people feel in terms of being part of society and part of the community when you're not respected and not accepted. Um, obviously, that's going to make you feel that. So they're both uh, um, real uh, tangible impact and the more... Uh, um, I would say atmospheric and and kind of uh, um, feeling impact that when you feel that you're not um, uh, accepted and and respected by the larger society and and I think there was a lot of feeling of acceptance and um, protection uh, certainly in the last years the, of the Obama administration and to the extent that that uh, will end or has ended, uh, that can have a negative impact on how LGBT people feel. How will this affect um, teens who are just now growing into their identity, who have never really known a more liberal administration? That's something that um, 
we're going to find out. I think um, certainly for everybody, teens and, and, and older people, um, that's why I mentioned before that it's so important to understand um, the history of the LGBT movement, of LGBT people in, in society, the, the contribution that LGBT people made to American society throughout the ages, not just uh, in more recent years, but uh, including the the shift in uh, how different administrations viewed LGBT people and uh, different generations. So I think um, the good thing is that uh, the lessons that uh, there are still lessons that can be learned from from the past, and and I think that's something that we need to make sure that young people uh, are um, exposed to and uh, learn about not only what is happening today, but also uh, where we've come from and what's happened in the past. And I think that could be a very uh, um, strong uh, um, lesson for your own resilience and for your own uh, sense of strength to to understand uh, some of this history and um, to guide us uh, as how we move forward, whether in the current administration or even further into the future. Do you think there will ever be a point where minority stress does not affect LGBT people anymore? that's a good question. Um, I don't really know. Uh, there has been experiences in the past in our country where a group has been stigmatized and there was a lot of prejudice against it. And it kind of over the years um, almost completely ceased, if not completely, uh, um, is, is a non-issue. For example, the Irish, when they first immigrated to the United States, was seen as an um, ethnic minority. They were seen as dirty, and people uh, actually would put uh, job advertisement uh, uh, ads, and they would say, no, Irish uh, should apply. Kind of the same as we've experienced regarding um, African Americans in the United States. But um, for the Irish, for some reasons, um, this has completely declined. There's no longer a significant uh, um, uh, identity in that sense of stigma and prejudice. Uh, Obviously, that has not happened with race. So where sexual orientation and gender identity fall, I don't know. But um, it's possible that um, the stigma and prejudice will continue even when there are a lot of positive changes uh, in even changes in law, as has been the case uh, regarding race in the United States. It's also possible that uh, there will be a decline, and some people are saying that they are observing a decline in the kind of significance of uh, sexual minority identity. That maybe there have been several uh, writers in the past who said that we are in a post-gay environment where we're, we're being LGBT is no longer an issue for young people. Uh, But I personally do not see that, and, and I don't believe that is the case at this point. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Meyer. You're very welcome. Thank you. Dr. Elon Meyer is a distinguished senior scholar of public policy at the Williams Institute for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Law and Public Policy 
at the UCLA School of Law. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Becca, Ari, Jamie, Sam, Callie, Andrea, Brianna, Jack, Stephen, Max, Quinn, Jessica, Sarah, Dhruv, Nisia, Lauren, Dante, and me, David. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of media for the public good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm David. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.